So tonight, I'll hopefully be telling you a somewhat abridged, very subjective story about DNA. Um, now, there are heaps of gross jokes I could make about DNA, some that might be extremely hard to swallow. But I'm pretty sure my mum listens to these and she's already disappointed in me because I'm almost 30 and still not a doctor. So we're going to leave that right there. Um, Atlanta, this is the worst form of heckling if you just laugh at all my jokes. It's really <laughs> shitty heckling. All right, heredity um, is the study of how traits are passed on from parents to children. It's a question humans have been wondering about since long before Blue Ivy Carter. Why is it that for every Shiloh Jolie Pitt, there's a rumor Willis? Even with access to unimaginable unimaginable computing power and our in-depth understanding of development and genetics, predicting a person's appearance from their genetic code is still very far from accurate. Sure, we can estimate predispositions to disease or specific deviations away from normal structure and function that are caused by mutations to specific families of genes. But modeling the complex interplay between the paternal and maternal copies of the approximately 20,000 proteins which code for genes in the human genome, that's nigh on impossible. One of the most famous champions of selective breeding in the 20th century thought he had come up with a final solution. But I promised Donald Trump I wouldn't steal his laboratory thunder and speak about Hitler. Um, (laughs) Just give me one sec. Uh. <laughs> but it's all Hitler jokes. Fuck, 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 fuck. But imagine if we had no idea where genes, w- what genes were, or even where they were lo- located. How would you even begin to try and understand how traits are passed on from parent to child, from parent to child? And I really think when I was trying to come up with an idea for Laboratory Story, this was what spoke to me. As a scientist. You come into a field and you try and answer questions about things that you have no idea about. No one knows why things happen and that's why you do the research. And you are already standing on the shoulders of giants because there's so many things that have come before us that have really set this up and I struggle to understand the most simple of of concepts. And yet these people have, from basic principles, been able to figure out what DNA is. Hey fam, what's going on? (laughs) Dope, 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 tight. Um, that was a really, really emotional part of my talk, and you, you fucked it, so that's, that's great, thanks. Um, how would you even begin to try and understand how traits are passed on from parent to child? Something that we all kind of understand now. I can say DNA in front of you guys, and you'd, you'd know what it is, you'd know why it's important. Um, respected scientists and philosophers from antiquity, like Hippocrates and Aristotle, had ideas ranging from the mixing of fluids made during the act of coitus. Um, to your body making tiny seeds during your lifetime that were then passed on to the offspring at the point of conception. In 458 BC, utilizing a move that I like to call the longest of cons, the scientist Aeschylus proposed that the male was the parent and that the female only acted as a vessel for nursing the child sown within her, thereby becoming the first internet troll in recorded history. (coughs) Ridiculous ideas concerning the topic of heredity were held back and forth throughout the centuries. Coming to, the bo- coming to a boil in the 18th century where epigenesists and preformationists made the feud between East Coast and West Coast rap look like baby fight club. Epigenesists believed that embryos continued to develop in the womb, whereas the preformationist view was that sex was the act of revealing what was always there. Which is already creepy enough thinking about the baby being in there during the process. I don't know, that was kind of weird. Um, 
Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the famed microscopist, didn't help the situation much when he reported the presence of animalcules or microorganisms that he observed in sperm, um, which later led to numerous other scientists proclaiming that they noticed small men or homunculi in each sperm cell. Now, I know microscopes weren't great back then, but it kind of sounds like someone was curious to, to what their manly essence looked like under the microscope, and then had to come up with a bullshit answer when they were caught. Like, hey, Anton, what's going on? Oh, God, nothing, not really, I don't know, whatever. And it's like, hey, what are you looking at? So, it was, oh, non-refundable tickets. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, this then gave rise to the spermist movement which agreed with Aeschylus that the woman was nothing but a womb to nurse a child, and also gave rise to their counterparts, the ovists, who believed the egg already had all the information within it and simply required sperm to activate its growth. Even big dogs in the field, like Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace, Alfred Wallace? Fuck, Russell Wallace, had no clue about what was going on. While they were able to postulate the theory of evolution, they could not describe an underlying mechanism that could explain how these traits were actually passed on from generation to generation. People undoubtedly point to Gregor Mendel, the Moravian monk, as the father of modern genetics. And while his work identified important com concepts like recessive and dominant factors, and the rates at which they are transmitted into subsequent populations, it didn't really answer any questions on what this factor, this inheritable thing that passed on from parent to child was. Um, Mendel's work was published in 1865 and was referenced three times over the next 35 years, um, which isn't that surprising considering it was a scientific paper written by a monk who studied peas. Hardly <laughs> enthralling. But at the beginning of the 20th century, Mendel's work was rediscovered or recapitulated by several scientists working to understand how we inherit these traits. And it proved really crucial in helping these scientists understand the role of the newly discovered chromosome which, for those who don't know, is a cellular body. Obviously, we know it's different now, but like back then when they found it, they were like, cool, this is something in the cell that's duplicated during cell division. Um, Mendel's laws of inheritance could explain how these chromosomes behave during cell duplication and how they segregated into different cells. In 1909, Wilhelm Johansson coined the term gene to refer to the factor that determines hereditary characteristics. And a very German-like twist, he explicitly refuted the idea that they could be attributed to a physical location, but was somehow predetermined. So, so orderly. <laughs> so my Germans. I know you guys. So this brings me along to my favorite part of this talk. Thomas Hunt Morgan. Uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan set up the first Drosophila lab at Columbia University in 1909. For those of you who don't know what Drosophila are, they're fruit flies, they're what I work on, so you know they're obviously super cool. Um, and Thomas Hunt Morgan basically didn't believe that the gene was a real thing. He was like, nah, fuck that shit, definitely not real. But all he did instead was, he was like, there must be something else. So what he did with these flies was he bombarded them with mutagens for days and days on end. He would use um, mutagens they could eat, x-rays, changes in temperature, all kinds of things you could think of. And after two years, two years of literally going into the lab every day and mutating flies, like, I, I do this and I hate it. Like, this guy had no clue what the fuck he was doing. And he would go in there every day and finally he found one male fly out of these millions of flies that he has been horribly torturing. One fly with white eyes instead of red eyes. Now, this was huge because all flies usually have red eyes. This guy had a white eye, what was going on? And so what he could do was he could actually look at the chromosomes within this fly 
He mated it to a whole bunch of other flies. He maintained that. And he could look at the chromosomes. And if you stain the chromosomes, you could see differences in the banding pattern across these chromosomes. And you could look at one that had white eyes and one that had red eyes, and you could see there was a clear difference. And he went, cool, straight away, something is happening to the chromosomes on these flies that's causing them to have this white eye phenotype. I'm just going to check how much time I'm using up, because it seems like a lot of time. No, we're fine. We've got heaps of time. Um, so from there, Thomas Hunt Morgan, he saw these mutations in the X chromosome. And him and his three students, Alfred Stuvesian, Calvin Bridges, and Herman Mueller, then used a whole bunch of staining um, methods to identify all these bands on these chromosomes, all these areas where these changes were occurring. Um, and they were able to, to clearly link these bands to mutations and therefore make a linear gene map. The patterning of, patterning of these bands could be linked to mutation and showed that genes were the unit by which these traits were actually inherited. So this was really huge. This was the first time when people could say, okay, if we look at these structures within the cell, there are actual changes to what is happening in there and that these changes are then passed on to the next generation. And I know standing up here and saying this, it doesn't sound like much, but if you read up on this, which I clearly have done so, so thoroughly, um, it's just this crazy thing. You think that you know how DNA works and all this stuff, and you read this story about how people discovered each of these things in a stepwise process, and you're kind of just like, yeah, man, you did it. You, you discovered DNA, that's great. You discovered genes, you keep going. You're, it's really weird, no one's laughing, this is really bad. All right, so chromosomes, they contain genes, and genes were the units that were inherited by progeny and gave them their traits. Cool, sorted, great, except for the fact that no one had any idea what these chromosomes were made up of, or what these genes were made up of, sorry. Chromosomes are comprised of water, proteins, and another molecule called nucleon. And given that nucleon was a large molecule made up of repetitive segments, the only thing that could realistically, from a scientist's point of view, account for the huge variability seen in genes was proteins. Proteins like enzymes, um, specific proteins like enzymes, were known to exhibit huge variability, both in the species they were in and the tissue expression that they had. And they were able to speed up these biological processes. So surely that must be the important part, right? Yeah? Yeah? No, wrong. So wrong. What if I told you that the name we use for nucleon today is deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA? Ha, <laughs> you look so stupid now, all of you. All of you uneducated Philistines. God. Yes, people knew about DNA. They knew what it, that it existed, but they didn't know it was what genes were comprised of. How could a repeating molecule comprising a phosphate group, a sugar, <coughs> and four, alter four alternating bases, something so incredibly simple be the cause of all the variation we see in the world. Preposterous, absurd, but one man was determined to prove that genes were comprised of DNA. And what was the name of this man, you ask? It was Emilio Estevez, the mighty duck man himself. <laughs> it works twice, I've already used that joke. No, 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 no. The man's name was Oswald T. Avery, more affectionately known as Fess, short for professor, although he never held that title. Oh. Avery was an immunologist who studied uh, pneumococci, the bacteria that causes pneumonia. And pneumococci was interesting, not just because before the advent of easily accessible antibiotics, that it killed more than 50,000 Americans a year, but also because it existed in both virulent and non-virulent forms. The, uh, maybe I should say contagious, not virulent. The contagious form had a smooth appearance, while the non-contagious form had a rough appearance. Using all of their imaginations put together, scientists named the rough strain the R strain, and the smooth strain was named? S strain, very good. 
The S strain was approximately four times larger than the R strain, and Fred Griffith, an immunologist working in Great Britain, was able to show that this was due to a large sugar layer the bacteria would produce, and that would protect it from the cell's defenses. Interestingly, when you add S strain like contagious bacteria to R strain non-contagious forms, the R strain was transformed into the contagious form. Studies in mice show that this was possible even with dead bacteria. So what was causing this to happen? This is a really key concept to understand if you wanted to understand pneumococci or pneumonia. Um, Avery used a technique called centrifugation whereby you spin stuff really quickly and you can actually fractionate everything out into different layers and you can then isolate parts of the cell that you want to look at. Um, so basically he found this and he isolated the molecule that could transform the R strain into the S strain. So from the rough into the contagious S strain. And by systematically removing components of this, this transformative property that he um, isolated, that's what they actually called it, Avery and his colleagues determined that it was not the carbohydrate sugar in the coating or the proteins encased within it, but another component of the bacteria that was able to transform. And that was their DNA. Unfortunately, everyone in the field decided that protein was way cooler to work with and was just like every time that, that Avery came up with an idea, everyone was like, mm, yeah, but what about protein? Did you get rid of all the protein? And he's like, yeah, most of it's gone. Like there was only like 0.02% left. And it was like, nah, nah, it's still doing it. And Avery was just like, Avery was a scientist. He didn't know how to talk to people. And he was just like, oh, you know, I don't know. Like he was, it was bad for Avery. He was really trying. Um, my notes here were science is slow to change, everyone believed it was protein, then I had a note about whoever smelt it dealt it, and that really does ring true in the science community. Um, Non-refundable. So, DNA is what genes are made of. That's basically what they ended up doing. There was just a very large body of evidence that suggested that was true, and over the course of about five to ten years, people kept doing experiments and found that yes, even though proteins have this large variability, DNA is the thing that changes um, DNA is the thing that is able to pass on these traits from person to person, or from generation to generation, I should say. They knew that DNA is what genes are made of, but they didn't know what its structure was. And knowing what something's structure is is really important for figuring out how it actually works. I shouldn't have to go over that anymore, so I clearly won't. Um, so, enter Morris Wilkins. He was an Englishman who was a physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project, had a clear existential crisis because of the... Manhattan Project, um, and he returned to England to be a biophysicist. He read a book by um, Schrodinger, who is also featured in this story, but like it's such a good story, I just glossed over Schrodinger, because like doesn't even matter. Um, and so he went back to England, decided to be a biophysicist, and his PhD supervisor suggested he should investigate the way that DNA doubles before cells divide. Um, after hearing a talk about creating high-quality DNA and obtaining a sample, he tried, Wilkins tried flattening the DNA into a thin gel, which he recalls as having the consistency of snot. I will then quote from a book, The Life's Greatest Secret, which is an amazing book. Um, please read it. It will explain this in such better detail than what I have done tonight. Um, he noticed something interesting happened when he looked at this gel, and I quote, Each time that I touched the gel with a glass rod and removed the rod, a thin and almost invisible fibre of DNA was drawn out like a filament of spider's web. The perfection and uniformity of these fibers suggested that the molecules in them were regularly arranged. Together with his PhD student, Raymond Gosling, Wilkins made a frame from a bent paperclip. It was later upgraded to fine tungsten wire, stretched a DNA fiber across the metal, and then put the sample in front of an X-ray source. 
To reduce background scatter by the X-rays, the inside of the camera was filled with hydrogen and the seal between the X-ray tube and the camera was bound in a condom. <laughs> now, just a bit of advice. If you're doing your PhD and your boss ever wants you to do a late night experiment with you involving X-rays and condoms, I would generally say don't do it. <laughs> but in this case, it worked really well. They were able to produce a map. <laughs> My Barnaby Joyce joke just kind of ties in straight away right here. Um, they were able to create a map, and basically they were able to try and get a very vague idea of what the structure of DNA looked like. But it became clear that they would need help. And at this point is where Rosalind Franklin was recruited. Um, this is probably where I should end the story. Like, you know, why, why not? Why shouldn't we end it here? Mainly I haven't read the rest of the book, so I don't know what really happens. Um, I read the book, I read the book. So Rosalind Franklin was a fucking gun. That's basically what happened. She was a wet lab genius. And she did all this work with X-ray diffraction, looking at how if you shoot X-rays at DNA, you get a certain type of diffraction field. And using really complex maths that would be hard even now with computers, she was able to calculate the structure of different things. However, Rosalind wasn't that great at the calculation side of stuff. She was amazing at the lab work side. The guys who were really great at <laughs> the other stuff, <laughs> excuse me, um, Francis Crick and James Watson, um, they didn't know anything about wet lab work. And so they basically, basically what happened was Watson went to a talk, commented on Rosalind Franklin's appearance the whole time in his head, you know, so he wasn't that much of a creep, but still really gross. Basically in his diary, he just comments about how the talk was boring and how Rosalind Franklin was kind of hot. And um, 18 months later found out that if he paid attention to that talk, he would have solved the structure of DNA 18 months earlier. <laughs> so the point of this story is I tried to write a, write a Labora story about the structure of DNA and how it was discovered. I didn't do a really good job, but I learnt a lot. And in the end, isn't that really what life is all about? <laughs> Thank you.